Hey, Scott, can you get over here so we can record our new episode of Current Geek Chronicles? Yeah, Tom, I'm already on the Skype call. I got a little bit of lunch left, though, so let me eat this last bite of taco and we can record. Well, just finish him so we can get this show on the road. Wait, who calls a taco a him? Tom, what's going on? Why are you wearing a sweater? I think my AC is on the fritz. It's positively sub-zero in my house right now. Wait a second. I think I see what's going on. Tom, do you happen to have a favorite city in Nigeria? Wow, Scott. I mean, I hadn't thought about it too much before, but I guess it'd have to go with Kano. Um, I think the city is pronounced Kano. Well, I guess I know what we're talking about in this episode. That's right, Scott. Voluntary industry self-regulation. So today we wanted to talk about a really iconic moment in the history of video games. It's something we take for granted today, but there was a time when you would buy a video game and not see that little E is for everyone sticker on the side of it or whatever the rating happened to be. Those rankings come from the Entertainment Software Rating Board or ESRB. We'll get into that in a while, but it all plays into a proud tradition of hand wringing about the moral decay of children. Basically, whatever newfangled thing the kids are into will destroy their moral fortitude, because dang it, I didn't have it when I was young. Or like in the 1820s, there was probably a parents group warning about how hoop and stick games were going to destroy the innocence of childhood or something weird like that. (laughs) The mortality of hoop and stick games. Uh, And of course, video games were no different. The rating systems we have today come as a result of pressure from congressional hearings in the mid-90s. But the public outcry about video games began before that. Yeah, there's a short write-up in the New York Times from 1982 talking about the Surgeon General C. Everett Koop, I remember him, said kids are becoming addicted to video games, quote, body and soul. Yeah, the best part uh, was a little blurb at the end. Dr. Koop said he had no scientific evidence on the effect of video games on children, but he predicted statistical evidence would be forthcoming soon from the healthcare fields. Well, all of these discussions from the 80s and 90s centered around video games being for children rather than a wide range of users. And it all culminates in the U.S. congressional hearings on video games in 1993 and 1994. Two video games in particular were at the center of these hearings. The first was a 1992 title for the Sega CD called Night Trap. And this represented a really interesting moment in video games. It's kind of a forgotten genre now, but this was a game played with full motion video. While graphics and video games have steadily improved over time, Night Trap was essentially a movie the player could interact with at set points. I played all the way through that game. Considering that 1992 was the same year that Wolfenstein 3D came out, or Stein if you'd prefer, kind of a benchmark for video game graphics at the time, that game. So in some ways, full motion video was a new level of immersiveness, uh, even if it's not nearly as interactive as a modern first-person shooter. And that's definitely what caused Night Trap to draw the ire of angry senators at the time. It took that full-motion video the Sega CD could support and used it to essentially let users play through a low-grade slasher movie. If I'm being honest, uh, production quality is more like syndicated TV show, but the plot centers around a family that's trying to become vampires, trying to become vampires. Right now, another five girls are headed towards the Martins to spend the night. Your mission... Protect those girls from whatever happened to the last ones. Now listen up. Last night, one of our agents got into the house and found some kind of weird security system. Hidden cameras in almost every room and a series of traps. Our agent spliced an override into the security system, allowing you to have control of the cameras and the traps with this remote unit. 
and a bunch of guys in black suits named augers that are trying to get blood from a group of girls that are spending the night in the family's house. Headed up by the famous Dana Plato. We got big, big problems. What? The augs are here. All right. I'll go downstairs and reset the access code to orange. Yeah, really highbrow stuff. The player is someone who is tapped into the security cameras of the house and is able to activate a set of traps that were originally meant to help capture the girls, but now can be used to foil these weird vampire people. By the standards of movies, you might give this thing a PG-13 rating. The blood that's drawn from victims is all done with this clunky mechanical device around their necks. It has shockingly little gore. But taking some of the tropes of a slasher film combined with the relative novelty of full motion video presented as a video game, which people kept assuming was targeted at kids, created the recipe for a controversy. Yeah, it was a weird time. And while Night Trap is an important video game historically and had enough going on itself to provoke a backlash, it was a different game cited in those hearings that became synonymous with violent video games. Mortal Kombat came out in arcades in 1992, eventually hitting home consoles in September of 1993, and it's usually seen as the thing that led to the congressional hearings that followed that December. Now, if you're a fan of the Sega CD or video game history, you know about Night Trap, but the moral panic about Mortal Kombat in the 90s was on a whole other level. Part of it, I think, comes down to access. You just had so many different ways to experience that game. Even if your parents wouldn't let you play the arcade game when it first came out, arcades were kind of the twitch of their day. Watching somebody play a hot new title like Mortal Kombat was just as much part of the arcade experience as pumping a machine full of quarters. And Night Trap was only out on Sega CD initially, which over the course of its life sold a little more than 2 million units. Mortal Kombat came out for the Genesis, SNES, Game Boy, and Game Gear all at once. So there were just so many more places for gamers and disapproving parents to find it. Of course, the genre of fighting games wasn't anything new. They show up in arcades as far back as the mid-70s, but the big thing about Mortal Kombat was the blood. In the arcade version of Mortal Kombat, when you hit somebody, blood went flying. Combined with higher fidelity, digitized versions of actual actors the characters were modeled on, it added a certain sense of realism, and at least compared to something more animated like Street Fighter II. The home console release of Mortal Kombat was such a moment in gaming. We asked folks what they remembered about that time. Turns out, blood and gore. In 1994, I was in sixth grade. I went to a friend's house whose parents owned Mortal Kombat, and they only let him play it when they were around. And he wasn't allowed to use the blood code. So when his parents left the room, we entered it and played a few rounds. When his dad came back in the room, he had to lie and say the controller was acting up and wasn't allowing his character to move towards mine. I didn't realize why he was saying that and offered to move closer to him. But before I could, he quickly turned the console off so his dad didn't catch us using the blood code. I was in college and working at a restaurant. My sister and I were living together, and we decided we were going to get a PlayStation. And this is when Mortal Kombat 3 had come out on the PlayStation. So we saved up and went to Kmart and bought a PlayStation, and we bought Mortal Kombat 3. Her daughter was also living with us at the time, and she was about four years old. And we started playing this game, and the four-year-old asks, Mommy, what's that stuff that's pouring out of their heads? What's that red and green stuff? 
And my sister said, paint, it's paint. (laughs) And then we very quickly looked around and found the setting where you could turn off the blood. The blood in Mortal Kombat actually became a differentiator for game sales. Nintendo was concerned about being family friendly, much more in those days, and required Mortal Kombat's publisher Midway to replace the blood with sweat or green goo and remove the fatalities and the other gory imagery in the game. And other versions reduced the blood as well. You hear Ryan talk about the blood code. That's because Sega included the arcade gore in its home version of Mortal Kombat, but you needed the unlock code to see it. It wasn't exactly hard to get a hold of either. I was 13 when Mortal Kombat hit consoles for the first time, both Genesis and Super Nintendo. Obviously, the big difference was the blood was only on the Genesis. And I was a huge arcade fan, so this is the version I needed. This is the version I wanted. But I was scared that when I'd go get it, they wouldn't even sell it to me. So I went there day one, and not only did they sell it to me, but the guy slipped me a little piece of paper in my pocket that had the blood code. As a sales strategy, it definitely worked. The Sega version outsold the Nintendo version five to one. Of course, the fact that Sega had to hide the gore behind a code showed they knew it would probably spark controversy. That was kind of Sega's brand at the time. What Nintendo? Remember, Mortal Kombat came out September 93. In May of 93, four months ahead of that, Sega introduced its own video games ratings council, which rated games as GA, MA-13, or MA-17. These ratings had to appear on the game boxes, but were quickly criticized for not being required in advertising. You can argue about how effective a rating system is, but it seems that parents had definitely heard something specific about Mortal Kombat that made them wary. We heard a lot of stories about navigating parental approval to play Mortal Kombat. So I grew up as a teenager in the 90s, uh, part of a family that was very devout, active members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And my mom was from Orem, Utah. So you better believe there was no way she was ever going to allow Mortal Kombat to into our home. But I will admit that there were times when I would go to my local arcade that uh, I may have walked by the Mortal Kombat arcade game, stood back and watched a few rounds, and maybe even put in a few coins myself. I remember playing my favorite character, Sub-Zero, and forming his fatality, which was, of course, ripping the spine out of his opponent's body. I remember just getting that down, and one day in the living room, I turned to my dad. Hey, Dad, come take a look at this. I finally got this down. And he's like, what, son? I do the fatality, and I rip the spine out of the opponent, and it's bleeding everywhere, and it's kind of dangling there. And, you know, in this 8-bit gruesome scenery, the the opponent just kind of just, just bobbling back and forth before he falls down in this pool of blood and I just was beaming with achievement looking for approval from my dad and just like isn't that cool and he turns to me and he's like son I don't want you playing that game anymore I forbid it but I think ultimately after a week or two I didn't care anymore I went back to to, to playing it but I remember for the longest time I was just like why did I do that when I was younger, I loved Mortal Kombat. I really enjoyed Mortal Kombat 2 on the Super Nintendo. That was a solid game. But my parents were not fans of Mortal Kombat. They didn't enjoy the blood, the gore, the violence, the stories. They probably thought it had some satanic influence on me. 
Uh, that was until I changed their mind. And how I did that was I learned all of the, the friendships in Mortal Kombat 2. And instead of the fatalities where like Baraka would walk up and cut your head off with one of his sighs, Baraka would like give you a balloon or a birthday cake or a gift. And, you know, I just showed my parents a demonstration of all this, you know, with the blood turned off, of course. And convinced them to let me play by proving it wasn't all bad and it had some morally positive elements to the game, I guess. Fatality. But despite the best efforts of Sega and inventive kids, in late 1993, early 1994, the United States Senate Committees on Governmental Affairs and the Judiciary held hearings on the effect of video game violence giving us amazing quotes like this one from Senator Joseph Lieberman. Like the Grinch who stole Christmas, these violent video games threatened to rob this particular holiday season of a spirit of goodwill. Instead of enriching a child's mind, these games teach a child to enjoy inflicting torture. Ah, Senator Lieberman. The end result of the hearings was that the Senate told Sega, Nintendo, and video game publishers that they needed to come up with industry-wide standards and ratings, or Congress would step in and create them itself. This led Sega, Nintendo, EA, Acclaim, and other publishers to create the Interactive Digital Software Association, which eventually created the ESRB we know and love with its five-tier rating system. In fact, originally... E wasn't for everyone. The category was called kids to adult. Funny thing is, all this controversy around Mortal Kombat didn't exactly translate outside the U.S. I haven't always lived in London. I grew up in L.A., in the Valley, in the late 80s, early 90s. And I remember Mortal Kombat fever really distinctly. I remember going to Kenny's birthday party. In the car, I got a talk from my friend whose uh, mum was driving us there about how we weren't allowed to play Mortal Kombat in the arcade under any circumstances. And then when we got there, there was a special attendant just standing next to the Mortal Kombat cabinet, making sure that no one under the age of, I don't know, 16 was playing the game. And so obviously we didn't. And then I moved to London, and the first thing I did when I made some friends is say, hey, let's go to the arcade, went to the Trocadero. There was only one game I wanted to play, Mortal Kombat, Mortal Kombat, Mortal Kombat. So we went to the arcade, and all my friends were like, why do you want to play that game? And it was just there in the corner. No velvet rope, no sign, no hysteria, just an empty Mortal Kombat machine that no one was playing. Uh, And everyone was playing Street Fighter 2. So the question is, even though Night Trap and other video games were prominently brought up in the hearings, why does our collective memory think of Mortal Kombat, not the others? Well, part of it is definitely to do with the platform, right? The development history of Night Trap was a fascinating mess and saw it shot in the 80s for a weird VHS-based console called Nemo, which never got released, by the way, and then ported it over to a small base of Sega CD owners. Mortal Kombat was an arcade hit, and... That's when arcade still meant something, and it hit all the major consoles at the same time. Yeah, while full motion video games offered TV-like quality, that's a type of immersion, Night Trap is also kind of a passive experience for the most part. Full motion video games died out pretty quick as graphics got better. Mortal Kombat came out when the 2D arcade fighter was red hot and added a unique spin to the formula popularized by Street Fighter 2. 
throw in a bunch of parents telling you not to play something, and you can see why it left such a resounding impact. The other thing that really stood out for folks at that time was just how much of this game exemplified what it was like to be a gamer before the internet came along, where a lot of the lore, moves, and finishers weren't immediately available to look up. It was a time and a place where we just weren't as plugged in as we are now. And so I remember, for me, at the time, based on what my engagement was in video game news and information, you know, going to the arcade and all of a sudden there being a Mortal Kombat 2 was incredible. One day, Mortal Kombat was the fighting game that I played, and then the next day, Mortal Kombat 2 was in the arcades. And it was transcendent in a weird way because all of a sudden it was like oh what's the story you know who's in this game who's not in this game oh you mean reptile is selectable from the the main menu now and where has this story gone but i do remember the day where i walked past the arcade and saw a mortal kombat 3 machine that i wasn't expecting to be there yet and just went i have to go play this and that game was so different and it had so many different characters in it It just was this crazy wellspring of information being thrown at me. All this stuff that you learned in between games suddenly was incredibly important information for being the most ridiculous, silly information in the world. We had the Sega channel, and I was trying to play Mortal Kombat 3. I don't remember what game it was, but it was locked behind a pin, and I was trying to figure it out. And then I got it, and my dad just happened to be there. He took the controller for me, and he's like, no, give me this. And I haven't been able to remember it since then. And the last one was when my cousin, I think this was around the PlayStation era, uh, was telling me that Mortal Kombat used real people. And I freaked out for a moment, and I thought, wait a minute. Does that mean they died? Because you have the fatality, and you have Nightwolf there. And he dies. So I'm like, wait, did the the guy from Nightwolf, the the guy who played him, is he dead? Because you just told me they're using real actors. So what is going on here? And I freaked out for a moment. And then I realized, no, it's probably not like that. It was a major impact on my creative side. I, uh, I was getting into art more and more every year, drawing mainly. I was being told I was good at it. So it was something that I did more and more and Mortal Kombat kind of took over at that point and that's all I drew was pictures of Katana, Sub-Zero, the logo everywhere. I drew the logo on everything, on all the little book covers you have in school. The biggest impact it had on me was lore, story, character design. From an artistic perspective, I, I just loved that and I don't, I know it's not, you know, the lore isn't the best But for whatever reason, it just, it grabbed me. Well, Scott, Mortal Kombat might not be for everyone, but hopefully all our listeners found something to enjoy in this episode. (laughs) Ooh, that doesn't sound good. Quick, Scott, think of something. Um, all right, how about this? Friendship. Aw, thanks for the hug, Scott. Current Geek Chronicles is produced by Hammond Chamberlain and Rich Straffolino. Executive produced and host by Scott Johnson and Tom Merritt. 
Special thanks goes out to the community who sent us so many great stories about Mortal Kombat. Our theme music is by Eric Van Skyhawk. Get more of his songs on Apple Music and Spotify under the name Skyhawk. Part of the Frog Pants Network. Get more at frogpants.com.